Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Blog Talk Radio. Well, welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show, where every first Monday we get to chat with military historian Mike Guardia. He's an award-winning author, as I said, a military historian, and he's a U.S. Army veteran, and that's his music. So, you know, we get to do a live show with him again. We're always Zoom recording, and then I got all excited. I'm like, we have the music. We get to play. <laughs> so welcome, everybody. Uh, you know Mike on our, has been on our show for years. And even yesterday's show, and his latest book is Danger Forward, The Forgotten Wars of General Paul F. Gorman. His 22nd book is coming out on March 25th called Combat Diaries, and we're very excited about it. And cool. lately, you can see Mike Guardia on the History Channel on the new series, I Was There, and it features actor Theo Wilson. And um, it's a really cool because he takes on you know what happened in like in real time of major historical events and uh, the latest episodes feature Mike with the Johnstone flood, Chernobyl. The next one is the battle of Stalingrad and the Oklahoma city bombing. So um, really check it out. And if you miss the live shows, you can go to history.com and find it there. And again, it's called, I was there today's show. We are going to be talking about prisoner of war camps, especially during World War II and the Vietnam War. So uh, to keep up with everything with Mike, go to MikeGuardia.com. But welcome back, Military Mike. How are you? Hey, ladies. I'm doing great. Always good to be on the show. Cool. Hey, it's what, been 24 hours? Not even, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, right, right, pretty much. Show. Wow. I, you know, that was quite a conversation. Who knew the, the, you know, the Toast to Women show would get into so much military history. Um, but, you know, we're going to talk about prisoner of war camps. Um, I'm glad we're talking about this. And Nancy and I just went to one in a town called Princeton in mm-hmm. Texas, in North Texas. It's just outside Salinas, right. about an hour and a half north of Dallas, I think. Um, but we were there. All I know is we were there. And they they had this, you know, big water tower. And um, apparently this prisoner of war camp used to be a migrant workers camp. And then during World War II, they didn't have the workers, the farmers didn't have the workers. So they put him in the migrant worker camp, the German POWs. Um, so they were all German. And the farmers would come in early morning, pick them up and take them out. And they would do a lot of the regular farming, harvesting, planting they did stone masonry around town. They even built what is now part of the park where this um, the plaque is of where they were. And then, you know, after the war, then, you know, the workers came back and they moved on. So they were there for about a year. But I didn't realize that, A, that this is kind of a common practice across the country, that these camps were settled in labor camps initially, and that they were even getting paid to work. Not, I think it was like $2 a day to work. So I didn't even know any of this. So I'm so glad we're talking about it. So 
because that wasn't right. a normal thing, right? That people would get paid. No, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not normal by any means. But uh, you know, in a broader sense, I really think that underscores the difference in how Americans have traditionally run their POW camps mm. versus how a lot of other places in the world have been running theirs, um, both before and after the Geneva Convention. Um, you know, it uh, it highlights how we appreciate the dignity of the prisoners that we take in, you know, even if, uh, even if we do push the bounds of how we extract information from them, uh, you know, you still can rely on a lot more humane treatment if you're in American custody versus the custody of a foreign military anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I remember my mother talking about um, when she was in school, um, they came in and collected all the Japanese children out of her school and right. that they were extremely polite and nobody at the, none of the kids in the classroom really understood what was happening until their parents told them later, the school made yeah. it look like all these lucky kids are going to go on a field trip or something. So right. even the kids weren't upset. They're just like, Oh, goody, goody, you know? <laughs> and then, I, yeah, I don't know what happened once they, were taken completely off the school grounds and found out later. And I don't know if the kids were um, reunited with their parents or how that happened. I have no idea. I just remember her saying that, you know, she found out later that they had all been taken away and and that was that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty scary. So that, but that would be different, right? That would be an internment camp versus a POW camp. And so, yeah, we should look at that because we were right before we went on air, we were talking about concentration camps being different. So there's three different camps, right? Right. Mm. Okay. So that's mm-hmm. internment. And so, like Manzanar, a national historic site, which is outside, uh, on the, I would say, on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. If you go up Highway three, 395 by Ridgecrest and Hey, isn't that by Edwards Air Force Base? Mike, you know that area. <laughs> it's close no. to it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we actually had quite a few different in internment in camps for Japanese Americans throughout the war. And it is a sad part of our history, but at the mm. same time, if there is a bright side to it, we can at least objectively say that uh, that the people who were in those camps were treated exponentially better than the people who were in, mm. in the prison camps in Germany. Um, sure. You know, because I think uh, a mistake that a lot of historians and a lot of social commentators have tended to make in the ensuing decades after the war was over was to try and establish some degree of moral equivalency between what the Germans were doing to the Jews in the concentration camps mm. and uh, what the Americans were doing to the Japanese in the internment camps. And you can't make that comparison because they're apples and oranges. I mean, neither one of them right. is right, but you have one that is qualitatively evil on one side happening in Germany mm. and something that is a, uh, something that's illegal and a pain in the butt happening here in America, um, you know, because it, it was un, it was inexcusable for us to be doing that. But at the same time, it's like, don't say that we were treating them as poorly as, as what the Nazis were doing to the Jews. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, don't mm-hmm. compare 
a thief mm-hmm. to a jaywalker kind of thing, you know? Yeah, that's true. At the same time, I know that we had Japanese-American uh, people who were in our armed forces during World War II. That's mm-hmm. right, and that is yeah. really a testament to their character because um, mm. uh, one of the bright spots in American military history has been the performance of the all Japanese American units that fought in Europe, mm-hmm. the most notable of which was the 442nd Infantry Regiment, uh, who distinguished themselves in both combats, large and small. And uh, you had more awards for valor come out of that unit per capita than mm-hmm. any other unit that fought in the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were all first generation uh, American born Japanese. Mm-hmm. people you know who who uh who were the uh, who were the sons of japanese immigrants and uh they all had first names like phil and tommy and joe but mm-hmm. their last names were tanaka mm-hmm. and yamaguchi and they were just as loyal as your everyday average neighbor next door but because they had an ancestral connection to the country that we were fighting, they were looked upon with suspicion. And despite mm-hmm. the fact that they had families back home who were in the relocation centers, they distinguished themselves mm-hmm. valiantly in uh, some pretty intense combat in Europe. So that I think is, uh, I think it's mm-hmm. a bright spot in our history in the sense that they were able to steal themselves and, uh, and, and prove their loyalties to the country beyond any shadow of a doubt while mm-hmm. they were still suffering setbacks um, okay. as far as their family's concerned. Right. Mm-hmm. There were also Chinese that were serving um, in American forces from, you know, oh, sure. actually we had some authors on the show talking about their family doing that and kind of, you know, glanced over a lot, you know, um, and, and, mm-hmm. and also look at Native Americans, you know, that were, you know, fighting for our country. That is just like, wow. Um, the Navajo That's Pro-talkers right, the Navajo and, Pro-talkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we got to do a show on them one day. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a whole whole. Um, and the Tuskegee Airmen. Sorry, we got to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm still like in that yeah. mode on them. But um, one thing too, you know, talking about the Japanese. Um, you know, one thing that comes up in history, and I know we've talked about it on shows too, is how they ran their POW camps, their prisoner of war camps. So mm-hmm. from what I was reading, that they said no to the Geneva Con- Convention. So was this this after, where am I where am I on the on this this was after World War II or was this during World War II or uh, Vietnam when they um, really it was basically after, sounds yeah. like it was after that they were from what I went they were the worst like the more deaths occurred um, in Japan prisoner of war camps versus any others. Right. Well. If you start with the Geneva Convention, uh, that was actually formalized in 1949, and uh, the war crimes that were committed by the Axis, uh, that was really the driving force behind behind the creation of the Geneva Convention. You know, they wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, war, especially war being what it is, how it's never really a humanitarian pursuit, and it's never nice, Mm. it's never pretty, there are yeah. still certain bounds that you should not go beyond. And when they took a catalog of all of the war crimes that w- were were committed by the Nazis, and they went through mm. all of the uh, they went through all of the documentation and all of the transcripts 
from the Nuremberg trial, and then they reconciled that against a lot of the uh, war crimes that they had documented from the Japanese. They said, look, uh, if there's ever a war, again, to any scale and any magnitude, we want to make sure that uh, that uh, um, any prisoners of war or any any persons who are captured or who find themselves on the wrong sides of an enemy line are treated with at least a basic level of dignity and are not subject to any of the atrocities that we have seen. And uh, there was a uh, there was an initial group of nations who signed on to that. And, you know, when they became signatories to the Geneva Convention, uh, they were expected to be bound by those rules. And if mm. they didn't, they say, OK, well, you're going to have the same fate that befell pretty much everyone in the Nazi high command that we got a hold of. Mm. And uh, and it was you know, it was it was after it was after that that the Geneva Convention became somewhat of a governing document. But you know how well countries have abided by it and mm. how well it's been enforced that's another question entirely mm. well especially right now when you're looking at what's happening with Ukraine and Russia you know some of right. the things i read doesn't sound like Russia is um part of the Geneva <laughs> agreement at the moment no. right yeah. yeah, and as a matter of fact, Nancy, I'm glad that you brought that up because mm-hmm. uh, that reminds me of a news story that I read, I think, gosh, just not much more than beyond the last 24 hours. Um, but Ukraine has actually sent out a clarion call for mercenaries, and they said if you are if you are okay. an overseas military professional and you fit the description of have gun, will travel – you wow. can come fight for us as a mercenary, and we will pay you sixty thousand dollars a month to fight for us on a contract Whoa. basis. Wow! Now that's a lot of money, and yeah. there are a lot of soldiers of fortune out there who would probably be willing to take that up. But Vladimir Putin, for his part, has intercepted some of those communiques and said, "Look, if you are caught fighting in Ukraine and you are a mercenary and you are not a uniformed member actively serving." on either side of the conflict, you will not be granted the same status that will be afforded to a prisoner of war. Uh, if we find you, we, we will not give you quarter and, mm. uh, you know, do yourself a favor and save the last bullet for yourself. Wow. Um, you know, Yikes. so, uh, so, so he is, so he is essentially thumbing his nose at the Geneva convention. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a whole slew of, legal ramifications that go on with that you know can Mm -hmm. he actually do that and is a mercenary afforded the same level of protection that a uniformed soldier Mm. would otherwise get and you know what do you do you know when you're fighting partisans or if you're fighting Mm. guerrillas are they counted in the same category but uh yeah so you know the um Mm. the 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 geneva conventions while it's good to have on paper you know Anybody with half a brain can try to find loopholes anywhere. So, but what about war crimes? Wouldn't that make Putin really guilty of war crimes? But I mean, it would. Does that mean anything? Yeah, and Nancy, that's actually the million-dollar question right there. Yeah. How much would it mean, and uh, you know, what body would be willing to try him? Um, you know, because. Uh, yeah. You know, the mm. the international laws are only as good as the willingness to enforce them and having the tools to enforce them. Mhm. 
When when someone in a war situation, and obviously this is you know, you know it's a war between Russia and Ukraine, but it's really not. It's like a it's just a mass. Let me try and take over. You know, um, mm-hmm. horror. But when you when you yeah. look at um, wars in the past, like World War Two, Vietnam, and um, is Guantanamo Bay like a prisoner of war camp? What would that be actually? What is that like? Well, what yeah. would we call yeah. that? Yeah. Well, uh, I think one of the official names that it went by, if I am remembering it correctly, was a detainment center. But mm. you know, yeah, well, let's a just long call time a spade to be detained. Spade. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, re- re- really, for what it is, it, it yeah. is an enemy POW camp. Um, you know, but the uh, the the key difference that would separate Guantanamo Bay from any number of facilities that you see elsewhere in the world is that, uh, you know, those, uh, those people who are detainees, if you want to call them that, or if you do want to call them prisoners of war or whatever politically correct term that membership fees apply after free trial cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better. You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. You you want to put on it, um, you know, they are still given a level of care that is not afforded to those who are captured by the other side. And Mm. that's just it, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Because if you think about what was going on, you know, no, that's a, that's Mm. a whole different deal. So the prisoner of war is like, what happens in like Vietnam? Um, You know, what if you Mm -hmm. caught someone? Okay. So then, I mean, when do you go like, Hey, I grabbed you. And I mean, was the whole go when you go into a war, Obviously, you know, there's the killing part, but then it's like, okay, when right. do you go, okay, I'm going to grab someone and make them a prisoner versus take them out? Like when, what, or do you grab the people that you know are really um, the hot shots, you know, on the other side and go, okay, we want to grab them so we can get information? Where does that whole thing come into play in war? Well, um from what I recall, the escalation of force requirements to be from when I was in the military is that uh, you shoot at any mm-hmm. kind of enemy personnel for as long as they are actively resisting you. Uh, so if they are likewise carrying a weapon or if they are behind any type of west, if they are behind mm-hmm. any type of weapon system, then they are free game and you are authorized to kill them. Now they can take status as a prisoner of war the moment they surrender to you. Mm. And uh, there are Mm. any number of ways that they can make those intonations. 
Um, but you know, the it, it is understood that you you engage them as a target for as long as they have the capacity to be a threat to you. Now, if a soldier or any type of enemy personnel has been neutralized and they no longer have a weapon and no longer have the active means to resist you, then that's when you take them into custody. But if they get combative or they try to resist, even if it's not arm resistance, then that resets the force escalation requirements and you are free to use deadly force at that point. Um, so, you know, when, whenever there has been a conflict where there has been a priority target list, uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a list of what the preferences are for eliminating that target. If you can eliminate the target, in its entirety and essentially make the person go from living to dead. That is the first priority. But if you can take them alive and if they facilitate that by their cooperation, then we also consider that a victory because this high ranking person can yield some actionable intelligence that we can Mm -hmm. use at some point down the line. Mm. Yeah. I wonder like, you know, we look at, um, John McCain, you know, um, mm-hmm. being, you know, prisoner of war. And he was, wasn't he in two camps or something? Like he, it was, you know, and this was before he was a politician, right? This is, you know, right. way back when in, in Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. Or was it, yeah, yeah. that he was, he was taken. But um, from what I understand, he, it wasn't the, the easiest of life, you know, mm-hmm. being a prisoner of war no. during Vietnam. No. No, so he was held at the Hanoi Hilton, and he spent a good chunk of his internment there in solitary confinement. And, uh, you you know, those who get put into solitary confinement, you know, they they have a smaller cell that is barely big enough to accommodate a full-grown man standing up. And, uh, you know, there's also minimal light that is Mm. being shined through, and... uh, it, uh, it it it's not a pleasant experience, and they make that solitary confinement as uncomfortable as possible to either try and break the psyche of that particular prisoner or, mm. you know, reform whatever they think are nonconformist behavior that uh, that, uh, that mm. a POW should mm. not have. Um, so yeah, he yeah. he he certainly. He certainly gave his testimony uh, to all of the uh, to all of the less than stellar um, mm-hmm. less than stellar treatments that he was subjugated to. But yeah, there's there's no question at all that it was not a it was not a pleasant experience for him. And he uh, it, it, it I don't think he ever truly recovered from the psychological scars. And if you uh, if you see the footage and you see the photographs of him mm-hmm. coming off the plane, you can tell that not only has he lost weight, but it has it has accelerated his aging process to that point. Sure. He looked much older mm-hmm. than the time that he had otherwise spent there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you look at prisoner of war, I mean, prisoners a lot of times are really, really skinny, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, skin and bones, depending on what can't, I mean, not, I haven't seen that really on the American side from the footage I've seen, but definitely on the other side, and especially you know, the, the Vietnam era seemed to be one of the worst. And if you got into Japanese hands, too, that they were – isn't yeah. it true that they put, like, bamboo shoots under your fingernails and, and stuff like that? It was like, all forms torture. of torture to 
get the information. But, you know, then when we're sitting back here at home and you're watching things like MASH, which was a pretty funny series, um, right. <laughs> I, I don't know how people in the military <laughs> respond to it because it kind of makes light of something that is really not a light subject at all. You know, um, it, hmm. you know, maybe people think that's, um, you know how people kind of take television as the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I wonder if people watch that and then feel that war was a big party somewhere, you know? Mm. Well, you know, I I uh I hope not. There, there there are probably some people who think that, but I, I think I think the older sections of the viewing audience and I think even those who were seeing MASH back when it was on T V in its heyday, mm-hmm. I, I think they saw it as um Hollywood using humor to try to deal with what was otherwise a bad situation. Yeah. Um, you know, because, because MASH being set in Korea, um, mm. that was one of the last so-called good wars that we had. I mean, granted, it didn't have the, it didn't quite have the panache or the glory of World War II, but it was one where, you know, we at least came home feeling pretty good about ourselves and mm-hmm. we had enough good data points to say, okay, we can call this a victory. But then you fast forward to the next decade and, you know, you had the, you, you, you you had the, uh, the tragedy and, and really the fire show of Vietnam Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, was a, uh, that was a terrible social event for us at home, you know, as Mm -hmm. well as being a, uh, as, as well as being a, a disaster on the international stage Mm-hmm. And I, I think what the formula there was um, was to take what was otherwise not a very highly regarded institution and put a lighthearted spin on it mm. to, on some subtle level, help the American society's collective healing process. Mm. Like to say, you know, hey, we can take something like the military, who, you know, right here in the 1970s does not have a very good reputation. We can make it uh, funny and lighthearted. Try to think of, you know, something like Gomer Pyle or, yeah. or um, you know, or uh, um, even the old Beetle Bailey comics. Um, oh, you know, just something yeah. that will, uh, yeah, something mm. that will, uh, something that will uh, take a humorous setup and uh, get people to forget about some of the more unpleasant mm-hmm. parts of the social unrest that we endured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was really, especially mm-hmm. after Vietnam, there was such a divide in the country over it. And, you know, yeah. it's, um, it, it's, you know, it's different now. Look at the country. Everyone's agreeing that Russia is wrong. So it's one thing Putin did. Right. is got everybody to now, no matter what side of the aisle politically you are, we all know Putin mm-hmm. is evil, you know, but it, it's right. when you, when you think of, after Vietnam, people were anti the military who a lot were drafted. You know, it's not their fault that they were drafted mm-hmm. and fought. And, and it was just a big, right. mad, crazy mix. And Korea, I mean, that was something that people forget to even talk about the Korean War. It's always Vietnam, right? But I think that mm-hmm. Hollywood has done that really good job of bridging a gap, of making something where people can communicate again in some way 
and create that dip, yeah. that um, blur that line in the sand. And I mean, even things like you know, Archie Bunker. I'm sorry, it was funny, you know. And <laughs> but they brought in, but they did it through humor. Brought in even Mash brought in yeah. serious topics. Mm-hmm. They did. Mm-hmm. If you go back yeah. and rewatch the Mash things, man, they did bring in hardcore oh, yeah. topics. And you know, that's the same thing as you know, All in the Family. Sanford and Son, even, and and moving on up, right. and all of those those, mm-hmm. I could watch that forever. And Hee Haw, by the way, I will watch Hee Haw until the cows come home. <laughs> I love Hee Haw. Okay. Totally off topic, but anyway, oh Hee Haw. I spent one New Year's Eve watching every Hee Haw. I didn't, you know, I came, man, I grew up in South Africa. I didn't know much about this stuff, but it was cool. <laughs> but going back to to <laughs> prison of war camps, you see, we had to have a little lightheartedness here. Uh, but yeah. Because it is um, it is heavy when you think about someone staying mm-hmm. in a camp and you are completely out of control. And yeah. our day to day and like you said, solitary confinement. And in some of these camps, they try to like take you away from your friends, like you know your soldier, you know, your your teammates, basically, um, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. you are not um, going to do a gang. I mean, I know that there's some pretty high profile escapes that happened. And so you'd think that they really did want to keep you away from your, your soldier mates because you may plan an escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, uh, it is one of the um, unfortunate parts of warfare that, uh, you know, you, you, you have some camp commanders and some high echelon, uh, high echelon military leaders who know a thing or two about human psychology and use the darker aspects of that to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Well, we now, see that right here at home with some police. You know, we're we're going through stuff right now with our police forces. Are they, you know, people want to not have a police force? Which, um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I lived in Africa. We I have want to have a, a police force. Well, no, but we had a corrupt police force too. When yeah. we at one point, so um, yeah. in Africa, it's different. So it's it's a balance in communication. I also wonder about yeah. you know how much training and. And mental health that goes into it too mm-hmm. for for all. Yeah. So there's yeah. a that's a whole other topic. Let's not get into that because Mike's <laughs> in Minnesota. We don't want that. <laughs> that's a hard thing. I was so hard. That's a whole other show. But um, it, going back to you know prisoners of war and um, your new book, the Combat Diaries, uh, Combat Diaries, which we're excited because this is you really telling the stories of World War II veterans, right, and getting it on paper. Um, because you really we're 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 losing our veterans now. They're moving on because of, that's what happens in in age. So um, mm-hmm. you were saying that one of them is in in the book Combat Diaries. These are all true stories. Again, um, was in in a POW camp in in World War Two. He was. He was. As a matter of fact, he was a Minnesota National Guardsman, no less. Um, hmm. So th- this one particular gentleman that I wrote about in the combat diaries, um, just an incredible story of perseverance, an incredible story of survival. Uh, here was a man who who joined the Minnesota National Guard right in the midst of the Great Depression. And uh, he went on the record to admit that, you know, I really only joined the National Guard because I liked the way the uniform looked. I know it would help me pick up girls at the local dances. And being that this was right in the middle of the Great Depression, I could use that extra paycheck every month. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he 
he he goes through the training for the National Guard, and he actually finds that he takes quite well to the military lifestyle. You know, he becomes a tank crewman, and uh, he rises pretty quickly through the ranks. He ends up becoming a tank commander, and uh, this is when the Minnesota National Guard was one of the few active National Guard units that had a qualifiable tank force. Well, you uh, wind the clocks a bit forward um, to the end of 1940 and the dawn of 1941, and uh, it's pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention to international events at that time that uh, war is probably going to find the U.S., whether we like it or not. So to Mm. try to stack the deck in our favor if if and when war comes, uh, they start federalizing a lot of the National Guard units, and they say, okay, well, uh, we want to put you guys on active duty for a while, and we're going to send you to places X, Y, and Z, and we're going to have you um, drill and train as an active duty unit so that if war comes, and hopefully it doesn't, I mean, knock on wood, but if it does come, then you will be ready to meet that threat. Well, uh, about a uh, year-long activation tour sounded pretty good in terms of any soldier's personal finances because they would be getting active duty pay and you know they would have access to all of the active duty benefits. Uh, so they activated his unit, the 194th Tank Battalion, and then they sent him all the way across the Pacific to the Philippines. Well, uh, this was the summer of 1941. And everyone was certain that if a war was going to break out, it was going to happen in mainland Europe before it ever happened in, in the Pacific. Um, because mm. we, we we still considered the Japanese military to be a second-rate fighting force. And the Philippines at the time offered the best of Army glamour. I mean, it was still a U.S. Commonwealth at the time. Uh, you know, oh, wow. you, had mm. the, uh, you, you had the capital city of Manila that was called the Pearl of the Orient and you had these you had these beautiful beaches and you know it was the it was one of the few places that soldiers were really fighting to get to you know you either wanted to go to Panama or you wanted to go to the Philippines Uh, so he's there and he starts practicing all of the normal variety of defensive drills that would be expected for a defense of the Philippine homeland but uh, nobody expects the attack on Pearl Harbor followed very quickly by an invasion of the Philippines. And given the resources that they had at the time, uh, you know, they were fighting a losing battle pretty much from the first day. And uh, at one point, they actually had to abandon their tanks because they didn't have the infrastructure points available to get those tanks to consolidate at Bataan. So wow, here you wow. had an entire tank battalion that didn't have any tanks and they were having to wow. make the retreat on foot. Well, oh. you know, he gets the, yeah, well, he gets the order to surrender. And, you know, some guys in the Philippines, of course, like Russell Volkman and Don Blackburn, they refused mm. the order to surrender and membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. 
Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. They disappear oh. into the jungle to raise guerrilla movements, but you know, other men did not Crazy. escape into the jungle because mm. they're all of their unit commanders said, no, if you resist and if you disobey the order to surrender, you're going to be considered a deserter and you will oh. be charged as such wow. after the war. Well, Dude. that didn't deter some people, <laughs> but it did scare some soldiers into saying, well, gosh, you know, I really don't want to be labeled a deserter. Yeah. Um, so they accepted the terms of surrender and they lived to regret their decision very quickly because they mm. ended up on the Bataan death march, just like this one particular soldier did. And uh, assuming mm, they even well. survived the death march, um, you know, they had a horrible, horrible experience in the Japanese POW camps, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just, just doing unspeakable things yeah. uh, with no rhyme or reason. I mean, it seemed like the Japanese were torturing these American POWs simply for their own amusement. Well, mm-hmm. this one particular soldier whose story is in the book, you know, he starts off at two different POW camps in the Philippines. And then at one point he's put on what's called a hell ship. And he is put on that ship and sent to the Japanese mainland to work in a different labor camp. Now they call it the hell ship. And this is important because the living conditions mm-hmm. aboard the ship, uh, the best way that I can describe it is that cattle are treated better because mm-hmm. they were kept in, in these very dark cargo holds. Uh, very often they were not fed. They had no access to bathroom facilities. So for the better part of a two-week voyage from the Philippines to the mainland island of Honshu in Japan, you had all of these prisoners of war who were in the cargo hold, and you know they were walking around in ankle high mm. urine that was splattered with all of their own fecal matter. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, so that leads to a whole slew of health problems. You had guys coming down with dysentery, you know, guys, mm. well, uh, sure. you know, guys who, who, who developed any number of health problems and uh, they died shortly after they got off the ship. Well, this one particular fellow, he survived the hell ship and um, yeah, he said that he will never forget the smell for, for as, mm. as long as he lived. And then they put him into a Japanese war camp that was on the mainland. And uh, Mm. those war camps could vary depending on what the size and function was. But the particular one they sent him to was um, a camp that was built around a Japanese coal mine. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. he he was working a a lot of the coal tracks there. Um, But, you know, of course, these POWs are so weak and they're so frail by this point that they can hardly keep themselves upright. But here's a bright, shiny moment of that story, because there was one point during his internment that uh, he was very, very close to being on death's doorstep. And there was a Japanese foreman who was in charge of this particular junction of the coal cart track. And, uh, you know, he and 
this particular POW, he was probably on his last leg of life. Um, but the Japanese foreman saw that the POW had a crucifix because this particular POW was a Catholic. Well, lo and mm. behold, this Japanese foreman was one of the few Japanese Catholics that actually lived in Japan. And once he saw that he had a common thread of the Catholic faith, he took pity on the POW, kind of lifted him up and, and put him off to the side and gave him enough time to recover so that, you know, he could mm. continue to do his duties. Um, but yeah, it, uh -huh. it, it was weird that you had that one faint trace of humanity that w w was detected there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that, that they got news of the bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and mm. they didn't know about the bombing straight away, but they knew something was up because um, one of the I want to say it was like one of the wireless lines at uh, at the camp. They had a they had a direct terminal to Hiroshima and then that terminal went dead because mm -hmm. the whole town had, had yeah. been obliterated. And then shortly after that, the guards vacated the camp. So the POWs are sitting around and they're looking at each other like, okay, what's going on? The camp mm. now has zero communications and all of our guards have left. What's going on? Um, have we recovered from Pearl Harbor? Is the U.S. about to invade? What's going on in mm. Europe? Nobody knew anything. Um, wow. But it wasn't but uh, but it wasn't but like a few days after that um, that uh, they met the uh, first of the American envoys, you know, who said, hey, guys, the mm. war's over. And we are going to bring you back home. And the, the happy ending to the story is that um, being that he was a Minnesota national guardsman, uh, he can say that he is one of the few POWs in history to be personally repatriated by his state commander in chief um, mm -hmm. because the governor of Minnesota at that time had gone over to Japan as part of the envoy to help negotiate the release of POWs, and he told one of the high-ranking Japanese officials, he said, look, you have quite a few POWs on your roster who are members of my National Guard, and they report directly to me, so I want to personally repatriate each one of these guys that you have in custody. Wow. Wow. That's amazing, yeah. because when you, mm -hmm. when you even think, uh, you know, him working in the coal mine, you think about what coal miners go through that entire that that hard yeah. work, and there's a trust mm -hmm. that is also. I mean, this is why we have unions for coal miners. It's one of the first, mm -hmm. you know, unions we had was about the health and care of the workers. And there's a trust in in mining that has to happen. There's a trust that it's like going into a zone that you you can really you can die in a mine very easily, mm -hmm. and you know that they're not being well looked after. You know, it's like, here, go do yeah. this work. But at the same time, if you want them to work, you do need to feed them, right? But if there's, so that has had to have been absolutely horrible going mm. into a mine. Oh, sure. Because, you know, yeah. mining is, it, it selects people, understand it and like it. and But it's a very scary, tricky well, craft and, and work. Itself. Yeah, yeah, as a as prisoner, it's a, prisoner, it's a whole different that's you know, a set whole up to be other a world. punishment. Yeah, that's so. creepy. I mean, you go underground mm -hmm. like that; it's creepy. I've gone in caves, man. There, there's a creepiness to caves, 
um, mm-hmm. beyond the pretty stalagmites and stalactites and national parks. It's, it's there's some creepiness oh, and eeriness to it. And, no, um, so I think it's it's um, that part of it in in itself is really crazy. And the thing too, it, being able to be rescued, that's something too. And when you think about the war and the communication when it was there. I mean, were they always planning, able to, like, okay, are we waiting until the war's over? Or are we already trying to get them out? You know what I mean? To be able to go and rescue, you know, all of our people that are, um, you know, POWs in the different areas around around the world, literally, because it wasn't just Japan. It's different areas that our soldiers were in, right, that needed to be rescued. Right. So that was like a whole other segment of the war. The war may be over, but it really wasn't until everybody got home. Right. So once they accepted the terms of surrender from Japan, um, you know, it, it at that point became, okay, our number one priority is to account mm-hmm. for all of our POWs and to try, try to get them back within our ranks as soon as possible, because it was no secret how poorly the Japanese were treating their POWs. And mm-hmm. they said, okay, well, the sooner that we can get to these guys, the better. And um, yeah. And you know the the healing process was a continuous one for all of these POWs, and uh, this particular one whose story appears in the book. You know he said that uh, you know he said that you know for years afterwards, hey, I still have to remind myself to forgive the Japanese. He said I've mm. he he said I've already forgiven them, but I have to re-forgive them two or three times a month because, mm. because uh, yeah there is so much resentment and so much psychological mm. trauma that he carries with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the downstream effects of being treated as horribly as they were, you know, it, it, uh, it, 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 it should make yeah. in, anybody give pause to see that, well, Hey gosh, you know, you don't really accomplish anything at all when you treat your POWs in this manner, you know? Mm. Oh. Well, it's you know, and it's and it's difficult because not obviously not every Japanese person has anything to do with what exactly. happened to him, right. you know. Mm-hmm. So, but but your body is you know has its warning danger signals, and that is automatic. It's an automatic response mm-hmm. to something that if you've experienced it, um, like if a dog bites you. And you see the same kind of dog or the same dog, you're going to pull back because your body says, "Hey, that's danger," you know. So right. it's mm-hmm. a normal response to that. But I can, mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. I, I wanted to touch on the Red Cross. I was reading all about the Red Cross, and this is really, isn't it, in World War II when they really became big, and um, you know, World War One is when they realized they needed some kind of need, or they needed some kind of effort, I should say. And wasn't it World War Two that they really got big in going in and helping the prisoner of war, you know, prisoners of war, not just, you know, the soldiers, but they kind of had a twofold thing, the Red Cross. And still to this day, I mean, look at what's happening for Ukraine. It seems like the Red Cross has gone in in every national and international drama, you know, the situation. Right. Yeah. You know, um, Ever since the end of World War One, the International Red Cross, uh, they have been the biggest 
mobile humanitarian r- relief effort anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, we can. Uh, I think we can point to the First World War as the first major conflict where they started hitting critical mass. And uh, yeah, they've been a um, they have been a good humanitarian force ever since. Mm-hmm. And, and getting blood too. Apparently, that's the other thing is they mm-hmm. they really got out and. The Red Cross was about, you know, blood and, mm-hmm. hey, listen, the American donut comes from the Salvation Army. The, the girls of mm-hmm. the Salvation Army in the World War II, yeah, would go around and make donuts and serve coffee to the soldiers. <laughs> There's like this whole history about the donut in World War II. And you've got it. I mean, it's, God, there's... um. There's so many stories, and that's what you're doing with the combat diaries. I think this is classic. How many how many soldiers have you documented in combat diaries? See, uh, there are 18 in total, mm. and uh, they run a pr- pretty wide gamut, too. Um, I think, uh, I mean, every, every single one of them is an interesting person, um, but if I, I, I can just throw out a few previews. Um, there was one who was an army nurse and, uh, you know, and she, she, um, she really enjoyed being a nurse because she said when you were an army nurse, you were actually in an entirely separate category from the wax, you know, the women's army mm-hmm. corps. Mm-hmm. And she said, people tried to call us wax, but we said, no, we're actually part of the regular army. We're not part of the women's army corps. And, mm-hmm. you know, I found her story to be incredibly poignant because, you know, at the time, there were a lot of combat restrictions on women, you know, and, you know, there, it was expected that if you were a female, you were not, you were not required, nor were you permitted to fight in a forward area. But when you're a nurse in an army mobile hospital, you know, you have no choice but to be right there on the front lines, even if you're only uh, two or three spaces back from it. And at these mobile hospitals that she served with, you know, I mean, she was serving with these evacuation hospitals in places like Anzio and all throughout the Italian mainland, which were some of the worst meat grinder Mm -hmm. battles for our forces early on, you know, just trying to uh, process the ever-growing list of casualties that were coming through the hospital, you know, trying to give guys morphine, trying uh, trying to assuage those who were fatally wounded and those who you knew couldn't be saved, you know, it really took mm. a toll on her psyche. And uh, not only that, you know, but, you know, while she's trying to process all these casualties and try to render the appropriate aid until a doctor is present on the scene, you know, you also have to worry about getting the hospital tent shelled by an enemy mortar, which, uh, you know, she said happened more often than you might mm-hmm. think, you know, the, the uh, bright red cross on top of our tents was visible for at least 800 mm-hmm. meters in any direction, but that Yikes. didn't always stop the Germans from trying yeah. to shell us. And there was a, uh, there was a bit of, there was a bit of a Machiavellian attitude towards it to say like, oh, hey, well, if there's a hospital tent, we know that if we shell it, the people inside aren't going anywhere and that those are fewer American troops that we have to deal with. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So here's a woman. It's Women's History Month. You brought another woman on board here. Yeah. I love that. I love yeah. that because we forget about them being, you know, the nurses and going through all of this. I mean, they were, you know, weren't you always in a in a target zone too, as a nurse or a doctor, as um, 
you know, because you build up a camp and everyone can see where your camp is, aren't you more an easy target, you know, in, in war? Because, you know, people know you've set up camp somewhere because you have to. Yeah. Well, you're, you're always going to be a target in a forward area. The thing is, is that if you have a camp or if you have a combat outpost or whatever name that you want to apply to it, um, you know, it's always understood that you're going to have a security element that is going to be um, part of that camp to ensure that it can survive. You know, you're always going to have guards on the perimeter. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're always going to have a fire base that is going to be at least one terrain feature behind that can you know, provide a rapid mortar or provide a rapid artillery suppression and the locations of all those forward station camps, mm. they're shared with the air force and they're shared with all of the local army aviation units, um, you know, to ensure that if this particular post is in danger of being overrun, they can apply not only indirect fires, but they can, you know, also scramble mm. whatever tactical air assets are nearby to, you know, stop the enemy dead in its tracks. Yeah. So, yeah, just being out there, you're always going to draw fire, but you have fire that you can redraw on your own. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part, it's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, get up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost on the Gambit DC app, online, or at any Gambit DC retail location throughout the district. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. As a charge nurse, you can be a confident and dynamic leader who supports the nursing team and guides their patient care. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program equips you with strategies that prepare you to manage the ever-changing realities of healthcare while maintaining focus on family support and patient outcomes. What do you think making a difference in healthcare looks like? GCU offers over 250 high-quality online programs like this one. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Mm. I yeah, I would just I would always feel like I'm a sitting duck. You know what I mean? I like to be on the run. Mm. Well, I think but if if a country does if a country does abide by the Geneva conference, I don't know that they would target hospitals, would they? Wouldn't that be part of that? Well, right, and um, yeah, and technically they're not supposed to, and and. I know that some militaries would be better at following that than others, but um, yeah. anytime you have any time you have a medical apparatus or even in the Navy, if you have a hospital ship, uh, the hospital ships I know are always very clearly marked. They're always solid white and there's a big red cross that you see yeah. on both the, mm. uh, on both the port and, mm. and the starboard side of the vessel. So there is no mistaking um, to mm-hmm. anyone that, hey, this is not a warship technically. It's a ship to accommodate the wounded. And um, it was kind of interesting because I can point to uh, another story in the combat diaries of, mm-hmm. a, uh, uh, of a soldier who was part of a naval convoy. You know, he was on a troop ship, and they were en route to the Philippines. And um, the, uh, the, the convoy itself came uh, under a Japanese air attack. Mm. And uh, one of the ships in front of him sustained a direct hit from a Japanese Zero. And then there was a ship on his side that uh, received a direct hit from a kamikaze attack. Mm. 
And, and one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was that, you know, you can read about kamikaze and you mm. can, you know, you can understand the concept behind it. But when you see it in real time, it has a terrible psychological effect mm. on you. Wow. Um, mm. Yeah. And, and he said, well, he said, when we were still under attack, one of the ships in the convoy hoisted up what they called a mercy flag. And, uh, you know, that, that's because, well, we didn't have any hospital ships in the convoy. But uh, when we hoisted up a mercy flag, it was a big white flag with the Red Cross in it. And that was to let the Japanese know that, hey, we are not to be treated as a combatant vessel at this point. We're making circles to try to pick up the wounded who are bobbing up and down in the sea. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you you know, there's always that element to it. Would you pick up someone on the other side? Like what happens, you know, if there's people in the sea and what happens if it's a, the other side in there, would you pick them up too and then be prisoner of war in a hospital setting? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, that's what the Royal Navy did with the Kriegsmarine in a lot of those naval battles that happened in the North Atlantic. Um, as a matter of fact, when they sink the battleship Bismarck, uh, there were there were two ships, uh, the HMS Dorsetshire, and I think the other one was the HMS King George V. Uh, those were two ships who um, ran interference to pick up a lot of the German sailors who had jumped mm. into the water. And you know, at, at that point, I think um, accepting the fate as a POW was probably easier for them, since they know, okay, uh, this battleship that we were on, it was the pride of Hitler's war fleet and now it is sinking mm-hmm. to the bottom of the north atlantic we don't have a single firearm within 1800 nautical miles uh so yeah we would we'll, we will gladly go mm-hmm. aboard this royal navy vessel as opposed to you know staying out here in the black icy waters of the north atlantic and you know probably being uh, probably being the next meal for the shark that comes along yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking about. It's like, and it's cold as hell, man. I don't care what tropical yeah. waters you are. There's a time when it gets cold. Well, and you, yeah. you just mm-hmm. even think of Battle of Normandy, right? And like, they you see them out there, and the, it, heck, no! Like, the European waters are not warm and friendly. That's not no, 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 no. And you're getting out in there in the cold, and then like in in other parts of the world, you've got sharks. Think about it. You're off of the coast, the Pacific coast. Dude, there's sharks out mm-hmm. there. Yeah, but maybe even just... a whale or two that might just, you know, fling you up in the water. But in the, and mm-hmm. if you're wounded, you're bleeding, so you are shark bait. I mean, that's just yeah. that no, and that's creepy too. You know, when you get you, no, that's that's a creepy, creepy way. It's like the coal mine. Now yeah. we've got the deep waters of the ocean, and you know, there's mm. creepy things under well, there. And then, you know, how mm-hmm. are you going to feed yourself? You know, you're going to swim after catch a raw what? fish. You, <laughs> you you have to tread water. <laughs> And if yeah. you're wounded and treading water, I mean, there's salt so water is healing, but like that mm-hmm. is, that is the, that's just, I'm freaking myself out on this whole thing of what can happen, <laughs> you know? So I'm, it's combat diaries. I'm excited for that to come out again, everyone, March 25th. Uh, you can pre-order on Amazon, go to MikeGuardia.com for that. But uh, just in closing here, I want to do a thing on the escapes, the escape attempts. So Nancy in, mm-hmm. in Arizona, we Papago Park, we've actually talked about them on mm-hmm. shows before, uh, talking about Arizona cooking. Actually, they have a cookbook, and there's a museum and a park there. This was a POW camp, and it was the largest escape to occur from an American facility, apparently. Uh, the, the German POWs tried to get out, and apparently we had Italian POWs in this country. We had, like, you know, mm-hmm. a whole bunch going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Nancy, going back to where we lived in Kenya, I was mm-hmm. reading, so it's a Wikipedia thing, so don't come at me if it's wrong, but apparently <laughs> okay. there are these, it's, I think it's Italian, Giovanni and Balletto and Vincendo, I don't know, Felice Benuzzi, they escaped Camp 354 in Nanuki, Kenya, and decided they're going to climb Mount Kenya, and apparently that there's a whole a huge thing deal. called... Um, <laughs> They recorded it saying no picnic on Mount Kenya. It's the Bear Mountain Picnic by Bob Dylan. No, but anyway, no picnic on Mount Kenya. And apparently they tried to do it, and then they turned around and escaped back to Camp 354. I need to look into this now. It's like a whole new thing. I had no idea that was going on in Kenya. You know, prisoner of that war is like, not hey, an easy climb. You know, especially no. you you you're an escaped person. You don't have the facilities or the clothing or anything that you need in order. To climb Mount Kenya. Yeah, but you think it's, it's all tropical no in Kenya until you decide to go mm-hmm. up, you know, Kilimanjaro or Mount Kenya. Like, no, yeah. it doesn't work. But I mean, I, mm-hmm. I need uh, Mike. Have you heard about that story? I'm, I'm gonna have to dig into this. This whole like, we want to go have a picnic on the mountain. <laughs> I would have to look it up because I didn't even think about, you know, a a World War Two, you know, well, escape. Even, I mean, was this World War Two? Lisa, even even the wildlife in Kenya is not, you know, you can't even leave that out because you might be out of prison, but now you're what in the wilderness? And I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but um, well, how are you going to get to Mount Kenya without going through the wilderness? You know. <laughs> so I didn't even think. Yeah, this was 1947. Oh, the film The Ascent. There's a movie on it. No picnic on Mount Kenya. There's a movie mm-hmm. we can watch. Okay, cool. cool. There it is. Hey, we did good on the on the Hollywood history here, Mike. Who knew? Today yeah. what we'd be talking about, oh, so it's know? an Italian prisoner of war camp in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Huh. Near Nanyuki. Yeah. So, hmm. why are the Italians getting locked up in prisoner of war camps? Because they were... I know they did Whoa. some crazy things in Africa, but but, yeah, I, w- I always thought it was the Germans. What, what was going on with the Italians? Yeah, well, the Italians were still yeah. huge. our enemy during World War II. Um, yeah. You know, they, uh, it, uh, they, it was uh, under the reign of Benito Mussolini. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know so right. they had also declared war on us. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was, let's see, it was actually in 1943 um, – that uh, that um, the Italian government proper capitulated, and Mussolini kind of took his regime into exile, and they continued to resist against the Allies um, until Mussolini ultimately met his demise, and and then mm. Italy was completely pacified and brought into the Allied fold. Um, but yeah, uh, early on. Um, there were both uh, Italian soldiers and Italian sailors that uh, were um, were that w- w- were captured and were brought to us as POWs. And wow. uh, this is actually another good segue uh, for me to tell you about a chapter in Combat Diaries because um, cool. one of the gentlemen um, whom I interviewed uh, was a PT boat veteran, and mm. I think most people tend to associate PT boats with being in the Pacific, Uh, but PT boats were very active in the Mediterranean as well. 
and um, a lot of the uh, PT squadrons found themselves ferrying OSS members and Allied spies to the Italian mainland and uh, also had some gun battles with the Italian Navy uh, because both the Germans and the Italians, they had their own version of the PT boat. And, uh, you know, very often throughout the Mediterranean theater, you know, it became a battle of the competing PTs because Mm. you would have American PT boats, you know, that were, you know, that were firing torpedoes and, you know, trying to blow up uh, the Axis PT boats at the same time. Oh, wow. So I had no idea about it. You know, I I, I didn't have to watch the PT-109 movie, Lisa. Oh, we're back to movies again. Wow. Well, yeah. So this is so I can't wait. Combat, you you need to get this. Can't you get it out sooner? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Well, I love it because you always bring in. I mean, look at all the books. Hal Moore and you know, uh, Paul Gorman and you know, just everybody you've documented. You bring their story to life as you know, human beings in war and what they were going through. And I think it's so important that you're telling everybody's stories and. Because otherwise, they, you know, the people will pass on and not tell, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people feel comfortable telling you, you know, you, you've been in the military, you've served um, a number of years. And I think it's so important what you're doing. And, and, you know, it's not just an audience of those who have served in the military or the armed forces that get it. I know you have a huge following of, you know, military folks, uh, men and women. But I think also for all of us who have not served, um, it, it brings it home for us and you know so that we understand the the amount of respect that needs to be given and which is huge right and just these stories have to be told and these stories also help bring peace and understanding you know instead of lines being drawn so i i'm excited about your next book the combat diaries because it's it's important you know mm-hmm. the men and women and i love that you always bring women in mike you you're good at that too you got to bring the women because you know, who was the soldier that uh, she she cut her hair off? And was it the Civil War that went to fight? There's a woman. No, I have to look it up. And she ended up in Silver Spring, New Mexico. Hmm? Well, I, I know that there was a Buffalo soldier who did that. Um, yeah. Her name was Kathy Williams. And That's uh, it. she That's it. Yeah. was able, yeah, she was able to impersonate a man and she joined mm-hmm. one of the Buffalo soldier resident, uh, one, mm-hmm. one of the Buffalo soldier regiments and uh, portrayed herself as William Cassie. Yeah. That's right. That's her. She was in, um, so there's uh, Fort Bayard uh, in Silver City, New Mexico, well, just outside Silver City in southwest New Mexico. And that's how we, you know, found out about the Buffalo Soldiers being there and um, about her. And so she was there. And, they've, and to this day they have, I don't know if the hospital's still there, but the fort is there and they've tried really hard to preserve it. And it's quite, I mean, it's, it's, you're out in the desert southwest, and then you go there, and it's like this whole compound, you know, of what happened way back when, and especially mm-hmm. with the Buffalo Soldiers. So I always think of her. We'll have to do something on her next, too. We have mm-hmm. a lot to do, apparently, you know. So now, Mike, everywhere we go, we're going to be looking for POW camps, and apparently Texas, I don't know what happened, but I clicked on something, and there's like a whole PDF mm-hmm. book done by universities with POW camps all over Texas, like mm-hmm. Apparently they were busy. The Southwest, like parts of California and Texas, all had Arizona. Yeah, they all had POWs. Was it mostly the West, or were there a lot back East? Just so we can plan as we go back when we go back East to look out there too, 
or is it just all across the country? Uh, most of the ones that I'm familiar with are concentrated in the West. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, they're, they're, I know that there's at least a few of them that are elsewhere throughout the country. Mm-hmm. It's a whole new thing, Mike. We'll be out there. So mm-hmm. everyone, uh, every first Monday we chat with Mike Guardia. A lot of times it's on Zoom, but we decided, hey, let's, you know, we're doing our live shows. It's still part of our anniversary year. And so we're having a nice blend, if I get to use that word, of live and recorded shows. We air daily. You can keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. And again, uh, keep up with Mike at MikeGuardia.com. His new book, Combat Diaries, will be out March 25th. And also follow him on the History Channel and watch him on I Was There. Uh, he's on different episodes. And uh, I know the two is Johnston, Johnstown Flood and Chernobyl. And so we're waiting for more, and we're excited about it. You can go to history.com to look that up as well. It's a great series. Um, you really feel like you're there and understanding what happened, you know, account by account. So good stuff. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always. All righty. Well, thank you, ladies. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Oh, thank you. And you always teaching us. And I can't believe I forgot about Mussolini. I feel like an idiot. I'm like, yes, <laughs> that was that time frame. I forgot. Remember like, that Hitler dude? always overshadowed. Well, Hitler overshadowed Mussolini for a bit, right? And so talk about the two ego powers going off. But yeah. How did Mussolini die? I remember, didn't his, him and his wife, was it a car accident or did they get their heads cut off or something? I remember it being kind of grim, like the two of them or something got killed. Do, do anybody remember how they died? I'm just <laughs> being yeah. gross. Hmm? They were executed. <laughs> yeah, oh, there it is. Okay, so off with their heads. That's that's how mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah, there hey, it is. Okay, you know. Well, he was evil. He was not a yep. good, good person. You know, not yeah. at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Everyone, take care. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, airing uh, our next show is actually continuing on with uh, women's history. We talk about uh, women in travel and travel writing and tourism with uh, four travel writers. Uh, about women around the world and their travels and what's interesting is they are all half of them were talking about going to Russia this year I don't think that's going to happen unfortunately so Mm -hmm. anyway take a listen again uh, tomorrow thanks everyone take care and see you soon 